The idea of a parent not only willing but able to help you out financially before or after death is alien to Mary. A legacy. She will contribute nothing to the purchase of the house. She has nothing and nothing is coming to her. None of this means she's unsympathetic to Nathan. She loves him. She understands his impulses and wishes. He was miserable when they met, trapped in the meanest of academic environments, where his brand of scholarship and his popularity with students was looked on with a combination of contempt and envy. To be offered a job at a good college in the East, a job in a department that values the kind of work he does, a tenure-track job, a job with the promise of what might be called real money in these circles, this is a coup, an achievement, an escape. They celebrated the news by going out to dinner in the best restaurant in Coleman, the Italian place, and by spending a good deal of the following weekend in bed. The house they are planning to buy, whatever house it turns out to be, is supposed to be a further celebration of all this, of Nathan's new luck, of his new place in the world. It's supposed to mark, for him anyway, a great change, a beginning. For Mary, its meaning is less clear. She's sad to be leaving her life in Coleman and her apartment there. She'll miss her job and the people she works with at the alumni magazine. She'll miss their competitive telling of jokes. She'll miss their long meetings, the meandering conversations that would finally and inevitably come around in some mysterious way that always surprised all of them to the topics for articles they might do for the magazine. And she's just a little worried about her marriage. She knows Nathan is planning a life, a life which the house is part of, that she's not sure she wants to live. She doesn't know whether she can be at home in the place he imagines, in the way he imagines her being. She suspects there's trouble coming, but she feels if they can just hold on to the easy camaraderie and sexual heat of their early days, then they can find a way to keep talking about all this, a way of shaping their marriage to suit them both. Their first day with Sheila was a waste of time. They had agreed on this in their room at the inn yesterday evening, lying down exhausted and fully clothed on top of the bedspread, not touching. Nathan's hands were folded on his chest as though he were arranged for viewing at a funeral home. They agreed they would have to raise their upper limit to get anything they really wanted. Or Nathan suggested this, and Mary went along. To her, everything they'd seen seemed possible. In each cramped little bungalow or shabby row house, while Nathan was getting visibly depressed, she was thinking how, if you just painted the pine paneling white or ripped up the orange carpet, if you took down the heavy layers of curtains and let the light in, the place could be livable. But because she could see Nathan's sorrow, she didn't try to sound hopeful or cheerful about anything. These weren't qualities he seemed to like in her anyway. And back at the inn, she didn't even mention any of this. She agreed with him, she bolstered him, she was the one who finally got up from the bed and made the phone call to Sheila, told her they would need to start over with new rules the next day. Sheila has quickly pulled together a revised list for today's viewings. They've seen three so far. The first one was too far out of town. They both wanted to be able to walk or bike to work. The second one was just ugly. They all agreed over lunch. Fake brick siding, a tiny dark kitchen, no. The third one, the one they've just come from, was lovely. A Victorian, but also much too big and in need of repairs. 
The porch actually bounced slightly as they strode across it. And inside, Nathan pointed out the water stains on the ceilings and walls, the rotted window frames. Now Sheila is saying that this next one, the one she's driving them to, is a little out of their range, but she thinks it's so perfect for them that she just wants them to take a peek. She mentions a price that makes Mary flinch in the back seat. She looks quickly at Nathan. His face is in profile to her as he looks over at Sheila. Mary can see a small, bitter smile move across it. A danger sign, though Sheila doesn't know that. But Mary can sense what's coming. He's about to tell Sheila it's a lot out of their range. He's about to ask her not to waste their time. Maybe he's even about to say that they're tired, that they've seen enough for one day. But Sheila isn't looking at him. Her small, childish voice rolls on, an innocent and unstoppable flow. Mary thinks of clear, shallow water. It's a double house, actually, she says, you know, attached. The other side is owned by that old senator who's retired now. Oh, I bet you know him. What's his name? The famous one, more or less the Kennedy era. He even looked kind of like a Kennedy. Oh, shoot, she smacks the steering wheel. Mary watches as Nathan's face changes, as the little smile disappears. He says, Tom Naughton? That's it, Sheila says. She turns and smiles at him. They've owned it forever. I've got no idea how long, since way before my time. There's a silence. Nathan turns to look at Mary. She can admire the sculpted line of his cheek, his jaw. It wouldn't hurt to look, I guess, he says. You know me, Mary answers. Real estate boy is. She tries to make her voice sound ridiculously sexy. She shimmies her shoulders, and Nathan laughs. That's good. He hasn't laughed, it seems to her, for a few days. But who's Tom Naughton? She'll have to look him up.